Well, in today's episode, I'm going to argue that the most important thing a woman can do is to be a wife and a mother. Well, if that's not controversial, I don't know what is. But if this topic interests you, stay tuned. This is the Bible Sojourner, where we discuss issues related to the Bible, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Shalom and welcome. Thanks for joining. Well, today we have an important subject to talk about, don't we? And quite controversial, I might add, but that's usually what makes a good episode. Today we're going to talk about the cultural view of women and how, as Christians, we ought to think about it from a biblical perspective. And of course, one of the big underlying focuses of this episode is the fact that even within the church, we have seen some degradation of the biblical view of womanhood. Now, I know that this is a very countercultural topic and that this may lose friends and not influence people to play on Carnegie's title for his famous book, but I think it's something we have to talk about as a church, and here's why I think it's very important. When we think about the church and its role in the world, the culture has seeped into it in so many different ways, and I think, by and large, in many of the churches, I've seen a complete ignorance on the teaching of what women are to look like, what men are to look like, and even the value that we should put on that. And that leads to a second major problem, is that often within the Christian community, within those who ascribe to the biblical picture of God's revelation to mankind on how we ought to live, there's a lack of appreciation for biblical womanhood. And so it's the simple goal, if it is simple, in this podcast, in this video, to talk about how the biblical role of manhood and womanhood is given by God. It's good and it is actually extremely effective. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And maybe to set the stage, I think the best way to kind of walk us through this is to really remind ourselves of what's going on in the world at large, because maybe you're in a Christian bubble, it's possible, or maybe you just kind of absorb what's going on in the culture and you haven't really thought about how the culture is viewing many of the realities around us. Now, just by way of review, we've talked about before on the podcast the idea of worldview, but worldview is essentially the construct by which you view everything that's going on around you. So you may view something in light of presuppositions without internalizing that. It's kind of like wearing glasses. That, that's a good way of describing it. You put on the glasses, you're wearing those glasses, and if you have a different colored lenses, then you're going to see the world through that lens, right? Maybe you're wearing dark sunglasses, maybe you're wearing the uh, different green tint, red tint, whatever. And so you're seeing the world through that uh, categorization, through that lens. And so this is how the world and Christians all view circumstances. Everyone looks at the world through a worldview. And so it's helpful to, to take a step back and analyze that. So when we're talking about how the culture views things, I need to remind you of a couple key components, okay? So first of all, the world, and we're mainly talking about secularism here, those who have rejected the biblical worldview, the world is going to view sex as a biological reality, sure, but gender is different and it's viewed as a societal, a societal construct. 
So it's it's not something that is intertwined with who you are biologically, but it is something that you choose to manifest or you have, you know, whatever, however you want to decide to live in life, you get that choice. In fact, I was just reading uh, a recent article and I saw that there was an article defining and explaining the 81 plus different kinds of genders. So just remember that that is the world in which we're living. And of course, remember, the secularist is rejecting God's revelation on this, and he is going to be embracing a worldview that has, that has a large subjective element to it. So that's the first of the four components I want to remind us of is that for the secularist, sex is biological, but gender is a societal construct which we choose to employ. And so that's something that's important. And now with regard to that societal construct, the, the second major pre presupposition that most people are living with is that that societal construct is need, needfully constructed by somebody. And who is it that constructs the societal framework? Well, right now, you've heard it, I've heard it, it is the white male, right? If you're white, if you're male, you are the one who has been in, in charge of constructing this society in which we live. It, they refer to it as white supremacy. Now, in the old days, white supremacy was you know, what a racist would do when they said the white race is superior to the black race or any ethnic minority, and then they would promote racist, angry, hateful, harmful acts. But in today's vocabulary, white supremacy isn't necessarily something that can be done. It is something that is, okay? So that's a key component. White supremacy, the idea of this white male patriarchy has constructed a society. And so that, that's the second major factor. And that leads to the third one. In reality, this construct that has been implemented has established a bunch of rules and regulations, whether that be through language, whether that be for rules. Uh, so for example, uh, women are kept out of the workforce because men have constructed a, a paradigm in which they are the primary wage earners. You have even constructs like police man, which emphasizes the male nature of everything. You have all of these language games which are meant to facilitate this white patriarchy maleness. And so this is bought into by a lot of people. Now you might think to yourself, wait a second, are you telling me all these people embrace that? You know, it is a different world. And unfortunately, the reality is you just do simple Google searches. You go to any campus, any university. This is what's being taught. You ask any of the college people in your churches, this is what they are receiving. They are being taught these constructs about how we live in a society that's dominated by a white patriarchy. And so part of the response then, this is the fourth presupposition, is that we as good righteous, and I mean righteous in the cultural sense, is that we have a, we have a mandate uh, to, to do what's right, to tear down these cultural constructs in order to then build up others, to, to make the way for the person of color to succeed, to make the way for the woman to succeed, we must tear down the rules and regulations and even language barriers that currently exist. So for example, this is where you get even the simple ideas of changing language from history, 
for example, to herstory or her story, as it might be pronounced. And so you have a changing in language, an attempt to tear down the culture, to erase stereotype, and then bring everyone to a level playing field. That's, that's how it's often uh, facilitated. Now, we've talked in the past, I have some episodes on critical race theory and some of the racial stereotyping that has been promoted through the culture. And I would also recommend the Just Thinking podcast. The Just Thinking podcast, those brothers, Daryl Harrelson and Virgil Walker, those two gentlemen have a phenomenal grasp on what's going on in the culture. Highly recommend that podcast. They have stuff on gender theory, uh, the feminist movement, critical race theory. They have a lot of great stuff. Done, done a great service for the Christian faith in talking about that. And we've done a little bit of that as well. And all these things are, are well known in the Christian community. For those who have studied this, for those who have implemented this, this, this shows up all the time. For example, not too long ago, a couple of years, I guess, the Smithsonian Institute, so not a, not some just podunk uh, organization, but the Smithsonian Institute, they had a, a exhibit where they had a Protestant work ethic being described as a racial manifestation of white supremacy. Because in contrast to the, and really what they were doing is they were extremely racist, but they would never call themselves that, is they were essentially saying that it's okay to be lazy as many African Americans are, but to, for somebody to say that, they, that somebody should work hard and that's the right thing to do, that's a form of white supremacy, which comes from the Protestant work ethic, which is a part of the big white supremacist movement. And obviously for a Christian, you know, we just default to 2 Thessalonians 3, he who does not work shall not eat, right? Of course, we know those things. Hard work is a part of the mandate. That's why we were created. Genesis 2.15, God puts man in the garden to work it and to keep it, right? So that's even pre-fall. So work is an incredible part of our existence as image bearers of God. But this is the cultural push. It's something that we need to understand about what's going on, right? So that's a that's a really important framework for what we're talking about. And before we just jumped into Bible passages, jumped into specifics, I think it's really important to kind of embrace that and understand that when you're talking to somebody or when you're seeing somebody talking on the news or when you're reading a news article, these are the presuppositions that they're having, right? So they, they are not coming at these discussions the same way. And this is also a warning, though, because it's also... This is the kind of thinking that starts to creep into the church is that you and I, as well as everybody else who sits in the church, has this influence constantly knocking at their door saying, let me in, let me in, let me in. I have some things I need to tell you about, influence you. Those are the things we need to watch out for. Now, as an example of this, I want to I point out uh, an article that just shows how prevalent this is. So this is from a website that is called helpfulprofessor.com. Now, why am I going there? Well, it's because this website is listed as one of the best higher education websites. So this is one of the top 17 teaching blogs promoted by the Education Center. It's uh, the individual who runs it is named Chris Drew, and he has you know, made this website as to one of the go-to resources for teachers and educators who want to like learn more about items or figure out what's going on. And so this is the common thing 
that is being taught to educators who then teach our college students, our high school students, our elementary kids students. These are the things that are being practiced in education right now. And so in one of the articles, there are many of these, there is a discussion of femininity. So what does it mean to be feminine is the, is the discussion. And so this is the intro to the article. And he says, femininity refers to the stereotypical cultural characteristics of women, including roles and behaviors which have nothing to do with the biological sex. Unlike biological sex, femininity is considered a social construct that's taught to girls at a young age through gender socialization. In fact, if we look around the world, we can see that different cultures define femininity in different ways. Below are some traditional examples of femininity. Please don't interpret this as my beliefs about how women should act or appear. Rather, it's a sociological drive into cultural, culturally defined traits that are increasingly outdated and stereotypical. All right, so notice what he's saying here is he's saying, I'm going to give you a list of what often people think it relates to being feminine. And just let just so you know, I don't agree with this list. And these are outdated and stereotypical. So he's saying this is not what has to define being feminine. And the implication throughout the article and some of his other articles is that we need to break out of that gender stereo stereotype. And we need to embrace this equal idea that women can do whatever they want, men can do whatever they want. Okay, that that again is the cultural push, is that women can do whatever they want, men can do whatever they want, nobody can say no, and nobody should think that you are more gifted or equipped to do one thing or the other just because you're a man or a woman. So this is some of the list. He has 15 in his list, and he lists things like empathy being a nurturer, emotional, kindness, being passive, being submissive, preoccupied with looks, being dependent, uh, operating in the domestic sphere, being talkative, being creative, tactful, shy, being a follower, or being refined. So those are just the 15 that he gives. And I, I just point out, you know, as I was reading through this, I, I was reminded that even the apostles, when they're addressing men and women in their, in their letters, they pay special attention to things like this. And it's interesting how they zero in, for example, in Titus 2 on the idea of not gossiping. Now, obviously, gossiping is wrong no matter what, but there's specific targeting of men-women groups and the sins that are particularly uh, tempting to them. So for example, in Titus 2, we could just go on the list. Young men are given one command to be self-controlled. And I always bring that out when I'm teaching Titus 2 because I say, listen, it's obvious that young men have a very difficult time controlling themselves, whether that be in lust, whether that be in anger, whatever. Young men are very driven and it's hard to restrain them. They need that harness. And so young men, it's imperative that they learn that self-control and self-discipline that's so crucial to their well-being. But if you look at earlier in the older women and younger women categories, there's discussions about being uh, not being gossipers. And uh, you think about how even how they dress modestly and all of that. There are certain sins and temptations that are, whether you're female or male, that you are more inclined to. And that is very countercultural already, right? 
But all I'm saying is that the Bible assumes that there's gender difference. The Bible assumes that men and women struggle in different ways, not because of some societal construct, but because of how God created us. Okay. And even I, I would also throw out there these typical feminine qualities that he's saying are just stereotypes with the idea of women being submissive or being a follower. Well, I would just say that the Bible actually commands women to do that. And I would say that's a reflection of Genesis 2, where God has created man in a specific role, and then woman is brought alongside to be his helper. But we're going to get into that in just a little bit. So all I want to show is that this is this is the common way of thinking, okay? So I know some of you aren't, aren't up to date with how the culture thinks on these things. And just remember that you're the outlier if you think in the biblical view of manhood and womanhood. This is how the culture is typically thinking, and this is how the culture is teaching your sons and daughters to think. So you need to either, well, you need to be aware of this, and we need to be combating this in how we present the biblical data. So in the conclusion of the article, he writes this, femininity is a social construct. Femininity emerged from social and cultural expectations of how women should behave. Societies in the past treated women as humans with lower status than men, and they were often framed as the opposite to men. They were assigned the weaker traits, while men were assigned the stronger traits. Patriarchal societies dominated history, and this mindset gave birth to the anachronistic ideas about how women and men should have, should, should be, uh, maybe there's a typo there with that, about how women and men should be even to this day. I think that's a typo there. And so this is one of those realities where the assumption is that this isn't something that's designed by God. This is a, in fact, uh, no doubt the author holds to evolution. That's the basically only alternative to a God-designed world. And so perhaps what this person would say if we sat them down to interview them is he would say, well, of course, over time, as societies evolved, this was the most common societal form. Men were controlling the societies, constructing this, and so this, these are the kinds of rules and frameworks that we have. And so this is one of the realities that we need to keep in mind. And as this professor goes on, he has other articles that we won't talk about, but he talks about how these different characteristics feed stere gender stereotypes, like women uh, belong in the home, or women should have children, or things like that. And just as a uh, as a side note, kind of tongue in cheek here, the reality is that that this individual and many others in the secular world would not agree with the assessment that only women can have children. Okay, this that's how crazy of a world we live in now is that people are being taught in schools that it's not just women who can have children; it's people who identify as female that gender quality. So it's one of those things where from our perspective, the very straightforward perspective in the biblical worldview, we would say, well, if women don't have children, we're in trouble because women are the only ones who can have children. And so that in and of itself, just thinking logically, we're going to get into the biblical text in just a moment, but just thinking logically, women have a from, from the natural perspective, they have a great evidence that they are designed to do something that men cannot and that's bear children. So the reality is that you should think, oh, naturally women do bear children. That is a good thing for them to do. But the push now, because it's getting so 
adamant and strong is to is to tell women no you know you you're you don't have to have children you can have a good fulfilling life to do whatever you want to do and you can just you know do whatever meant you can be a ceo never get married all that stuff and that's fine there there's no regard no consideration for the biblical worldview or picture and so we need to talk about this now from a scientific perspective i just thought this would be helpful i'm a big fan of jerry bergman who has written a lot of really really helpful materials articles books and he had a uh, article that i thought was helpful on the icr.org website and i just wanted to highlight a couple of the things that he notes with regard to the science of the difference between men and women before we jump into the biblical text so one of the things he points out is that there are unanimously viewed uh, biological differences in the medical world and even even though we live in a in a world where you know people go in to get their checkups and i've heard i've heard them ask these questions right they say are you do you identify as a woman who has all the woman biological parts or whatever you know however they ask those questions now it's just insanity it's not just are you a woman or are you a man they have to define do you have the body parts of of uh, x or y do you have the body parts of this or this how do you identify it goes up and down the spectrum and it really is leading toward insanity but what the medical community does and why they have to do this is there are acknowledged differences in how men and women respond to different medications for example and one of the examples that bergman gives is in the sleep drug ambien it's metabolized differently in females compared to males and so historically they only used to test medicines on males. I didn't know that until I was reading the article. And so they used to test it only on males, but what they found out was that women would respond a lot more uh, powerfully to these drugs. And so you ended up having female users of Ambien uh, having twice the dose that they ought to have. And so they would often fall asleep behind the wheel and get in car accidents. And that's obviously not good. And so they quickly realized, okay, um, this is something that we need to scale back with regard to women rather than men. Uh, it's also shown that alcohol can have stronger effects on women than men. So there, there are, and, and a lot of this is due to hormonal differences and, and variations there, which is prevalent among women versus men, et cetera. And so we understand that. But there's also such things as brain scans and brain activity, which shows that men and women process things differently, whether it be images, mental images, and whether that be, and we're not, it doesn't have to be like por pornographic images or anything like that, but that definitely has been shown as well. But it can be something, reading a paragraph, looking at a picture. There are lots of differences between men and women, which is with regard to brain scans, how they process things. And that's, that's fine. That, that's fine. It's just a, it's just a fact in the biological world. The other thing is, is with muscle coordination, women and men are often different. Women tend to make, according to Bergman, better neurosurgeons due to their superior fine muscle skills. So they have just a better grasp of this fine muscle movement, which, which is very important, essential for neurosurgery. But then you also have the alternative where men make better diesel mechanics because it often requires heavy lifting and gross muscle coordination. So that makes sense. Biologically, there are differences between men and women, and that's, that's something that we just put down as fact, right? But then that starts to lead into this idea of, well, maybe men and women 
are different, not just because society tells them they should be different, but because they choose to be different. And that leads to the other conclusion that Bergman makes is, and this is something that's well recognized in the, in the data as well, is that men and women tend to pick different careers, not because it's not available for men and women, but because men and women have different preferences. And so females tend to choose careers with more personal reward, even though the pay not, may not be greater. They, they, they like the socializing aspect, even though uh, the pay might not be there. They, they love to, to be in helping environments. You know, uh, you know it's, it's well known that there are many female nurses, and that's not just because nurses are always thought to be female, but it's because women have that emotional desire to help people in, in a lot of instances. And so there, there is that. Males tend to choose better paying jobs, even if they don't like it as much. So there, men are often more motivated by money versus the other external rewards, uh, whether it be interacting socially with people or whatnot. Now, that's not always the case, right? But we're just talking in general here. There, there are certainly exceptions to those, but I think we give the data points to acknowledge that there are differences between men and women, and that shows up even in the data. But now, having talked a lot about that information, I think it's, it's most important to, to just talk, well, how does scripture define the role of men and women? And how are we to think through that? Now we're going to just focus on the role of women today, but I think that this is so important to, to draw it back to what scripture talks about. And when, when you think about all the extra info that we just went through, for example, for introduction, all that's good, but really for the Christian, the most important thing we ask is, well, what does God say about this? That, that's the reality. And, and that's why, as Christians, we need to keep going back to God's word. And that's why I, I say this is the most important question you can ask. All that other stuff is, is important. And you know, many conservatives who argue that women shouldn't be in the military or whatever, they might argue statistically, they may argue from science, whatever. That's fine. They can do that. But for a Christian, all that really concerns us is what does Scripture say about how men and women are defined in their roles. And so the reality is we start in the very first pages of the Bible to see the definition of men and women. And Genesis 1 and 2 paints the picture that God creates man and woman, but he creates them differently in different contexts. It, it's not just it's not enough to just say, oh, God created man and woman, period. Well, that is true to a simple degree. But the reality is any student of scripture understands that there were different circumstances within the creation of man, man and woman, and those circumstances are evidence of a greater reality of how God expects man and woman to function within creation. And so in Genesis 2, we're told that God takes man, so God creates man first, and he puts man in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, as a side point here, one thing I wasn't planning on mentioning, but I guess I will, is that this is commonly an argument that Paul uses to talk about how man should be the leader in the home. So 1 Corinthians 11 uh, and for, uh, 1 Timothy 2, he draws out this analogy that, that man was created first. And so that doesn't mean that man is better ontologically or inherently. In other words, it's not like, masculine superiority he is so much better but functionally functionally mankind is given the leadership role in in the family and so god designs man 
and he puts him in the garden to work it and to keep it. That is man's role. And then as the text goes on, we find out in verse 18 that the Lord says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then so we see the whole process in Genesis 2, how God puts Adam to sleep, uh, forms and fashions the woman out of the rib from within Adam to bring him a compliment. And a compliment is a great term to use with regard to the relationship between Adam and Eve, his wife, because Eve as a compliment is not the same thing as Adam, which is very clear from the text. Uh, Eve is not the exact same. It's not, it's not the sameness that is being emphasized as much as it is the compliment part to Adam. So to put it another way, I think it was James Hamilton who first said this, or at least that I read him say it first, and so I associate it with him, is he said, you can't reverse the descriptions in Genesis 2. So in other words, you can't, you can't read the text saying, oh, and Eve was created by God to work and to keep the garden, and Adam is a helper for Eve. You can't do that. It's, it just doesn't work in the context to reverse those roles. Eve is given the assignment to help Adam. And so when we think about the creation of man and woman and their designs early on, it's very, very clear that man and woman were created differently for different purposes. And so I think that we, we acknowledge that as Christians and we don't shy from that. In fact, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people say, well, that's just narrative. In fact, some people might, might say, well, that's just descriptive. That's not prescriptive as to what might take place. But just a reminder, in Genesis 2.24, at the very end of that chapter, you have the concluding statement, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two of them shall be one flesh, right? And that's, that's a reality that indicates that this narrative is meant to be taken as a prescription. It's meant to, it's meant to draw direct application to the life of marriage and the home and all of that. So I think this is very important and we need to, we need to not shy away from using Genesis, but we need to say, this is where it starts. And, and the whole point in the Christian worldview is that God designed the world and he has the right and the authority to tell us how we ought to live within that world, right? So moving on then to other passages, I think one of the most important passages to reference would be Titus 2. And I already made a small allusion to this passage, but I think Titus 2 is so crucial to this discussion because in one of Paul's last letters and one of his most important letters for the life of the church in the pastoral epistles, which includes 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, in the pastoral epistles, Paul is essentially giving instruction to his Proteges, Timothy and Titus, telling them how life ought to look, how they how they should construct the churches, how they need to teach those in the church in order to function. And so Titus 2 is a phenomenal passage because it is focusing on what everyone in the church needs to do. You have older men, older women, younger women, younger men, uh, slaves, and everybody mentioned in Titus 2. So you have any kind of occupation possible mentioned there, and they're given specific instructions. Now, for our purposes, we're focusing on the role of women. So in verses 3 through 5, you have Paul instructing, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, 
not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Now notice there again, the slandering is, is emphasized. We talked just uh, recently about that. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Ooh, it's hard to get much more countercultural than that. Now, I just want to draw out there a couple, a couple of phrases which I think are so, so crucial here. So, well, I mean, it's hard not to do an exposition of the whole thing because all these things are just so important. Uh, I always think it's interesting that the older women have to train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. You mean that's not just a natural thing that, that just will organically happen all the time? Well, no, it won't organically happen all the time. I mean, praise the Lord if it's easy to love your children and your husband, but that's not usually the case. I mean, speaking on behalf of husbands around the world, I know that we are not exactly the lovable bunch. And all the men in the audience said amen to that. And all the women said amen two times louder, if you know what I mean. And the reality is, though, that they're, they're living in a fallen world. We discipline ourselves to follow these biblical commands of loving each other. And specifically for the, the wives and the mothers, uh, they, they need to exercise that love, to be taught, to be trained to love their husbands and children, but also to be self-controlled, pure. But then here's an f- interesting phrase, working at home, to be home workers, homemakers, sometimes it's called. And so this is an interesting command that the women are instructed. And, and by the way, men are never commanded to do this. This is not a description that also applies to men. Although, again, the cultural push would say it's, it's a societal gender construct, and so you should be able to reverse the same descriptions. But women are instructed to be working at home. Uh, one of the best descriptions I've, I've heard of this phrase is that the priority of the woman's sphere is to be taking care of the domestic environment or or the home. And what that means is not that the woman can't leave the home or that the woman's role is only in the kitchen. You know, those are often arguments that are thrown out. You're just saying that women only belong in the kitchen or whatever. Well, no, that's not what it's saying, but it's saying that that is the primary realm or sphere of responsibility. And so if a woman is taking care of the home and doing a good job at that, there are uh, opportunities to go outside and take care of other things as well. You, you read Proverbs 31. It's obvious that that woman is not lazy, nor that she stays at home all the time, right? And I think that that's an example, at least in Proverbs 31, of a woman who's industrious, who's smart, who's intelligent, who works very hard, very strong, you know, that's, that's not some pushover of a lady, but she, she's involved with home and she's pouring her energy and industry into that. So I think that's an important thing to, to recognize. Now, in contrast to this, I think that it's, it's helpful to contrast this description of what a godly woman is to be trained to pursue and contrast that with Proverbs 7. In Proverbs 7, we have a description of what's known I think in the King James version as the wayward woman. So the wayward woman, how is she described? Well, she's the prostitute, right? And and the prostitute is described as as this one who's tempting this young man and bringing him down to death basically. She is his his end. 
And what she is described as, and this is meant to be a derogatory description, obviously. In Proverbs 7.11, it says, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Her feet do not stay at home. That's an interesting comment. In other words, it's interesting that that this this woman uh, just does not like being at home, is always gone from home. She she abandons her her sphere, her domestic sphere, as it were. Now, am I saying that every woman who leaves her home for an extended period of time or who doesn't have a home or who whatever, am I saying that they are a prostitute? No, I am not. Okay, obviously. I mean, what I'm saying here is that there are descriptions in the Bible of of people for a reason. There are caricatures, but not all caricatures are wrong. Not all caricatures are without reason. And so what, what Scripture seems to be emphasizing is that the good and godly wife understands that it's her responsibility to make sure the home is taken care of and pour, pour and invest into that so that her husband is freed to do other things. In fact, I mentioned Proverbs 31, but this is another passage which should be brought up into consideration for this, because in Proverbs 31, in the description of this, this valuable woman, this, this uh, in, in Hebrew, it's the virtuous woman, the, the one who is above value more than rubies, uh, this, this, wo- this woman who is so extremely valuable, what, what is she described as? One of the descriptions that she gets, which is so strange until you think about it, is that in verse 23, it says that her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. And why is that mentioned with regard to her? Well, I think that it's mentioned because she is working so hard at home. She's, she's pouring her energy and efforts into the family that the husband actually has time, effort, and energy to be able to establish himself in the leadership of the town and community, and he benefits people by by being an elder and helping them. So in other words, her success leads to his success. I mean, this is a well-known reality that uh, behind every strong and successful man is a stronger and more successful woman. I mean, there is actually a lot of truth to that with regard to family life. Because if husbands or fathers had to had to be worried about how the what's going on in the home all the time, well, that's going to limit all of their time. Uh, it's going to preoccupy them. They're not going to be able to invest in others. That's why one of the qualities, if you think about it this way, that's why one of the qualifications of the elder of the church leader is that his home must be well functioning, that he must rule his home well. Because if if he has to pour his time and investment into the home. If it's not going well, uh, that's also going to d- detract him from the leadership responsibilities he needs to have. But it's also a, a poor example to the believers as well. And so these are these are common elements. And, and going on in Proverbs 31, we also read that in verse 27, uh, she's known for her benefiting of the household. It says she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She does not eat the bread of idleness. She's, she's investing herself in, in her home. That, that is her priority. And I just think that that's, that's such, a, such an amazing, uh, great picture. Now, there's one more passage I want to talk about, too. There, there are many passages we could talk about. We could mention 1 Peter 3, which is a phenomenal passage. We could talk about Ephesians 5, which is another great passage. There, there are probably countless other ones we could, we could talk about. 
but I want to zero in on first Pete or first Timothy two as well, just because I think that there's a, there's a verse in here that really frames the existence, the ideal of, of the, the role and purpose of a woman. And I just think this is so crucial. So in first Timothy two, 11 through 15, Paul writes, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. A couple notes there. First of all, when Paul commands, this is a command that a woman, let a woman learn. That's actually a command. It's not just a, oh, I suppose a woman can a woman can learn. No, he's actually saying, let a woman learn. He's commanding that, which is pretty countercultural because in the secular world of the Greeks and the Romans, women, you know, didn't have, didn't, there were, there was no prioritization for women to learn. Okay. But in Christianity, there was a big push for a countercultural push to educate women. And so Paul is saying, let a woman learn. That's the command, but she is to do it quietly and in submissiveness. Okay. So that the attitude is also important. And part of that is because of how God has designed men and women. But don't don't ignore that countercultural command that Paul gives there. But then he goes on and explains further, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. So again, you know, that that's pretty common what we would expect with regard to what we've seen in scripture up to this point. Now he gives an explanation because of because of the creational backdrop. So he says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, here's, here's what I want to zero in on in verse 15. So he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. Now, when we think about that text, uh, she will be saved through childbearing. This has prompted a lot of debate, a lot of discussion. And I wrote a blog post on this a while back. And one of the realities, I think, is when you're working through all of the interpretive issues about who is the she that's mentioned here, uh, she will be saved through childbearing. I think in context, it's referring to Eve. But what I would say is I think that she's, she's a representative of womankind. So in other words, as Adam even names her Eve, he names her Eve because she will be the mother of all living. So in, in one sense, she represents women who are to follow her as she, she, she's kind of blazing the trail, as it were, the first trailblazer, and she is going to set the pattern of what women are to do. So I think it says, she will be saved through childbearing, and then it switches to a plural verb, and it says, if they continue in faith and love and holiness. So I think the reason it changes to a plural there is because it's broadening out, making sure that you understand that we're talking about all women there. Now, of course, some people have said, well, that, that talks about the they there is referring to children. That's also a possibility, but I think it's more likely referring to women in the context. And so what, what does it mean to be saved then? Uh, she'll be saved through childbearing. Again, some people have taken the, the idea of childbearing there to be a reference to the Messiah. So in other words, Eve will be saved through the childbearing, in other words, the birth of the Messiah. And that's possible, but I think when you when you see how childbearing is used, for example, it's used in 1 Timothy 5.14, where Paul says, I would have younger widows marry and bear children. So the reference there in 1 Timothy 5 seems to indicate, even though it's a verb that's used there, that it's it's a reference to the generic bearing of children, not 
the bearing of the Messiah, as it were. Although it's definitely a possibility. I, I think that it's referring to generic childbearing. But then what it also says is that is that she will be saved through childbearing. So does that mean that there is a uh, promise attached that if you bear children, then you will attain eternal life? So you don't even need to believe in Jesus. You just have children, then you get to heaven. I don't think that that's what it's talking about. I think that this is the common scriptural emphasis on obedience validating your new nature as a Christian. So in other words, it's kind of the Philippians 2 concept that you work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So Christians have always recognized, at least biblically faithfully Christians, biblically faithful Christians have always recognized that there is an element where we are responsible to manifest what God has done in our lives, and that validates or shows the world that our faith is genuine. Okay, the uh, works do not lead to salvation, but salvation leads to works. So that, I think that's probably what's going on here: is that you have the woman who is, or Eve is representing women here, and she is being saved through childbearing. So in other words, she is being obedient to God, going through raising families. Uh, having children, and she's manifesting her faith in God that way by being faithful to what God has designed her to do. And so I think that this is one of those realities that Paul is, is emphasizing in God's plan. God did design woman to help Adam. So we're talking about Eve here. Uh, God designed Eve to bear children, to help Adam be fruitful and multiply. Let's put it this way. You can't be fruitful and multiply without a man and a woman. And the woman really is essential to that process, right? Because the woman is the one who bears the child and delivers the child. And so if you think about this, uh, we, could, we could think of childbearing as kind of maybe the fancy word that people use is a synecdoche. Synecdoche is a famous, famous, not famous, you've never heard of it. Uh, most people have never heard of it. Uh, it. It's a term which refers to one part stands for the whole. And so, in other words, a synecdoche being, being childbearing, child uh, giving birth to children for women, it, it's not. It's using that because that's such a key component of the whole process of bearing children, raising children, and functioning as women. I think that that's what's being emphasized there. Now, granted, this is a bit of a difficult text, but I think that that's what's going on here. Is that Paul is zeroing in on saying. Listen, the most important thing that a woman can do is she can bear children. She can raise those children. She can help them grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is what leads to her salvation, not in the sense of not in the sense of she is being saved by doing that, but she's working out her salvation in doing that. And I think that that's just so crucial. So so take a step back. What what if that's what's going on here, and if we take it holistically with the rest of what Scripture is going on, what the rest of Scripture has been teaching, what we're seeing here is that Paul is putting an emphasis, even in the pastorals but elsewhere, that men and women are different. There are roles that are different. Men and women have different roles, and women are to be intimately involved with raising their children, with working at home. That is their sphere. That is the, the sphere which God has designed them to function in. Now, 
Let me make a couple qualifications here because I think this is really important. Okay. So does this mean that women who are not married are inferior, that they're not somehow living up to God's purpose? Well, that's an emphatic no. Okay. Now we have examples in scripture of unmarried women who have done amazing things. In fact, uh, I was just reading through Acts and it's possible Lydia was not married. I mean, there's no mention of her husband. She's off running her business. She's she's uh, from Thyatira and all these things. And so it's possible she's not married. It's possible. Uh, well, it, it's, it's 100% true that Anna in Luke 2 is no longer married. In fact, Luke tells us that she was married for seven years, I believe. But then when we meet her, she's 84 years old in the temple. And she's praying and, and working with the saints there, uh, obviously not married anymore. And so her, her widowhood doesn't disqualify her from, from service or ministry or anything like that. There's no indication that she has children or anything. And she is just serving and ministering. So there, there's an incredible value there as well. First Corinthians 7 is brought up as well, right? Their singleness does not disqualify somebody or think that they are an inferior human being or anything. But here's, here's the issue that we, we have that, that's difficult is, is sometimes we try to really overqualify things. And, and because we don't want people who are unmarried to feel bad, we, we don't talk about the importance of marriage. The same thing with children too, right? The other qualification is just, let's say you are married and let's say you want to have children. You want to have children so badly, but you, you, you can't, you can't have children. Does that mean that you are an inferior couple? Does that mean that you are somehow less, less of a woman or, or less of a, a godly couple if you don't have children? Of course not. But let's, let's be honest. This is part of what it means to live in a, in a broken world, uh, suffering the noetic effects of the fall. This, I, I've known many, many couples who have been infertile, who haven't had children. They've wanted to. They, it's been the source of many tears and struggles, and, and I get that. I, I understand that that, that that unfulfilled desire is, is difficult, but that's part of what it means as a Christian to trust God's sovereign plan for your life. Now, there are other options. There is adoption. Adoption is definitely an option in those cases and whatever. But we understand that both can be true at the same time. In other words, God can design woman primarily for a specific purpose, but that doesn't mean that exceptions to that purpose are somehow outside of God's plan or that we can't appreciate those individuals who are in those exceptional circumstances. In fact, one of the, one of the most you know, impactful couples that I've known in my life who just is incredibly gracious and, and hospitable and, and just loves other people. Uh, they don't have any children and they, they, but they've poured themselves into other people because of that reality. They, they've been freed up for ministry in ways that, that other families are not. So I acknowledge these exceptional circumstances. I acknowledge that. And, and, and I, I know that those are painful. And I know that sometimes we might we might unintentionally harm people or hurt people when we talk about how important mothers are or how important uh, wives are and things like that. I, I understand. I understand. And that's why we try to be uh, circumspect in describing that. But we can't, we cannot not talk about this kind of thing because really the main problem in our churches and culture today is that we are refusing to talk about the differences between men and women and how God has such a 
a key design in women. Uh, women contribute something special that that men don't have, and that that relates primarily to the family and to the home, to children. And so let's not miss the key application here. We, we can we can be circumspect. We can talk about things holistically. I think that's good and right. But we we do need to talk about these things and stress, especially for the sake of our young people, right? I've just unfortunately, even recently, was made aware of of a young woman who just said, "Well, essentially, children are an inconvenience. They would really mess with my with my desire for a career." Wow, you're like, that's not good. Yeah, we do, we don't want people to think that being a mother is somehow less of a calling in life. I mean, what I would say the key application here is that being a mother and being a wife is the most important role in the entire world. Okay? I know. You're like, "Whoa, no, that is that is that is just being too far, too far." Well, let's put it this way. Every king, every president, every uh senator, every, you know, house of representatives, every judge, what is it that they all have in common? They all have mothers, right? This is, this is, this is what we often just ignore. And, and the reality is that mothers are influencing so much, so much. And God designed it that way. That, in fact, well, not to make it all about me, but I'm just going to tell you, like, you think about who are the most influential people in my life. Well, Hi, mom. You know, like, hello, this is, this is the reality, right? My mother influenced me so much. And that you see it all the time. The professional athlete, they, they score the winning touchdown or whatever. They look at the camera, you know, they say, hi, mom. They, they wave that way. Mothers have such an incredible role. And it's just devastating if we do not, in the church, really, really hold that up as an important, good quality and standard, right? We would, most of us, I mean, and again, there are exceptions there, right? I understand that people who were orphaned, you know, I acknowledge that, but the, by and large, the majority outside of exception, we've all been incredibly influenced by our mothers or perhaps a mothering figure in our lives where you have somebody come along and take that role. Absolutely. So, so why don't we talk about this issue more? This is, this is the reality. And I think this is really important to understand. Is that for for one thing, like why isn't this a bigger deal in churches? Why don't we have more people preaching on this, talking on this? Why don't we have people elevating that the that it's so crucial to be a mother and a wife? And by the way, if you're being a godly mother and wife, uh, I'll just go ahead and throw this out there. Uh, there's often not much time left over. Okay, this is uh, this is such a commitment, and that's why. Mothers and wives deserve such amazing praise. I really should be doing this on Mother's Day, but oh well, I guess I'm a couple months early. That's okay. We can share this on the social media networks on Mother's Day. But the reality is that this is so crucial and you're, it's so sacrificial. So why don't we talk about it more? Well, admittedly, in the day and age in which we live, there's just so much going on culture-wise, uh, things that we need to combat. We have LGBT issues. We have doctrinal deficiencies, of course. We 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 need to spend time investing in that. And and sometimes uh this this kind of discussion, this kind of encouragement 
takes a back seat, and it ought not to, but it does. And the so that's one reason is there's just a lot going on. People are defending other areas of the faith, but this is an area of the faith. This is an area of God's revelation. And that leads to a second reason we don't talk about it is that the world has such a stranglehold on this topic right now. Every university, every station on TV, every movie that comes out is feeding you the idea that men and women can be the same. I mean, just think about every time you see a female action hero um, drop, drop kick a guy or whatever, you know, it's just they're, they're feeding you this idea of women and men. They're the same. They're the same. They're the same. They're the same strength. They're the same propensities. They, they like everything the same. We're, a lot of times we're just incapable or unprepared to fight against that. Or sometimes maybe we're scared to fight against that too. Because think about it from the pastor's perspective. The pastor, uh, unfortunately, he's a human being as well. And if, if he looks out at the congregation and says, wow, if I, if I preach that women need to be a certain way or that they need to look forward to the day that they're going to be mothers and wives, and that's going to be something that they should, they should really l- train themselves to, to love and enjoy. If I preach that, I might lose a quarter of the congregation. They'll, they'll leave. Well, that, that's not a reason to not preach that, but let's just be honest. That's some of the reasons why some people don't. And so there's fear. There's, there's worldliness, unfortunately, that creeps into the churches, and so we don't talk about these issues. But then here's another, another issue, and I think this is present in a lot of the biblically-based sound churches, is that there's a hypersensitivity. And what I mean by that, and again, this is a cultural phenomenon, but there's a hypersensitivity. Uh, I've been in the discussions where, where people say, well, we shouldn't celebrate Mother's Day at church because that will make all the women who aren't mothers feel bad. Now, I already talked about this, right? I am not, I, I acknowledge the reality that this, this hurts people. I acknowledge the reality that there is emotional, emotional devastation by these realities. But there's emotional devastation by the young man who had his, had his heart broken by the girl who broke up with him. There's the emotional devastation from the girl who had her friend die in a car accident, right? There is emotional devastation in a broken world. And that doesn't mean that both can't be true. We can't acknowledge the fact that there is emotional turmoil and heartache, but we can also uphold the biblical idea. The biblical ideal, in fact, is what I wanted to say, of there there being a special role for women and men. And the two are not irreplaceable. You can't irreplace those. And so a lot of times we're so hypersensitive to people who, you know, aren't married or they they don't have kids that we kind of do the whole death by a thousand cuts thing where you overqualify it so much that now all of a sudden people are like, well, I guess it wasn't that important to begin with, you know. But this is the reality is we do need to prioritize and highlight. This is such an incredible, important theme. And I guess, you know, I always knew this was an important theme, but, but I've just become more and more passionate about it as I've gotten older, as I've seen more. And part of it is because I have the incredible privilege of being married to an amazing wife and godly mother. And I genuinely think that she is the best mother and wife I've ever seen or heard of, you know? And when I see that, I just think to myself, and we've had these conversations where 
where you know she even just wonders, well, why isn't the church telling telling me, encouraging me that what I'm doing is just as important as going out in the workforce and slaying the corporations and making the millions of dollars? You know, why isn't the church telling me that? Because when we read and study the Bible together, that's that's what we see. That's that's what we get. But the church, I mean. I, Again, like I, ju- I just think this is a this is a difficult road that for many reasons that that pastors and leaders haven't walked well, and we need to underlie this incredible theme. You know, I see how my children are growing up as as my wife has incredible influence on them. I'm just so grateful, but I just can't imagine honestly living in a life where where I would I would turn over the majority responsibility of raising my children to other people. You know, whether that be through public school, whether that be through daycare or anything like that. Now, listen, listen to me very carefully telling you this at the bottom of my heart. I know there are exceptions, right? Single motherhood or, or broken families. I know that those exceptions exist. And I'm not saying, again, we, we die from the overqualification, death by a thousand cuts, right? You can embrace both realities that there are exceptions, but that there is a best way. But God can work through the less than ideal, right? I mean, he saved us for crying out loud. So the reality is that we can acknowledge this and we need to acknowledge this. And one of the reasons we should be so passionate about this is that this is the Titus II mandate to train up the next generation. And so I would just passionately plead, if you still are listening or watching this, that you would embrace this reality that there is there is such a important unique you know uninterchangeable role for women and that we ought to be proclaiming that from the housetops we we need to be really be double double underlining that we need to be encouraging our women the the young girls into the young ladies even the middle-aged ladies that have family we need to be encouraging them that this is the biblical ideal and we should we should get in the habit of praising young women when we see them functioning as mothers, as wives. You know, I, I've tried to implement that in my own life. When I see families functioning well, I try to encourage the mother, especially saying, "You're doing a great job. You're such a great example." And and they need that, you know. And and I think that sometimes we we just think, well, I can't compliment somebody because you know they they're not you know, doing something extraordinary. Being a mother is extraordinary. Okay. There, that's all we need to say about that. Okay. Well, you can obviously tell, I feel pretty strongly about this topic and yeah, ever since college, I I just really have seen this make or break many families or, or couples. And so I think that we need to, we need to examine the scriptures, talk about this freely, uh, keep these conversations going. I know it's not easy, and Rick Holland always said, he was a great influence in my life, Rick Holland always said that he thought the most difficult job in the world was to be a mother. And I couldn't agree more with him on that. And I think it's not easy, but it's so essential to the life of the family and the life of the church. So we must continue in that vein. Well, as always, I love to hear from you guys. If you want to send me a bunch of hate mail, you can reach out to me through the contact form on my website, petergaiman.com. You can also find out more about me there. And you can also find out more about the seminary where I teach, shepherds.edu, and would love for you to be able to take a class someday there. Love hanging out and interacting with students. 
Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.